Good. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here, and we're delighted to have you here to worship with us. Um, I believe in the prayers of the people, the power of the Spirit, and the work of the Word. Amen? If I were to say to you the name Rosie the Robot, the what? The Jetsons, exactly right. Rosie the Robot was their in-home helper, and I'm not sure what phase or stage of life you're in, but I know for our family that would be a tremendous benefit at this point. If you could wake up in the morning and way better than the coffee pot coming on at 6 a.m., you can have, you know, Rosie the Robot and plug in, you know, vacuum carpet, clean bathrooms, make dinner, and we'll be home at whatever time. Well, imagine if you will, this is going to take some creativity, but it's my story and I'm making it up, so go along with it, all right? Imagine if you will that one day you have this opportunity for Rosie to make dinner. And consequently, you tell Rosie, hey, you know, we're leaving and we want to be back at this time. And we expect a decent meal. And Rosie's got that sort of figured out. You know, she's not creative because she's just a robot, but she understands X amount of noodles, X amount of water, X amount of sauce, X amount of meat, makes spaghetti. Done. All right, so you program Rosie, her battery pack's all charged, and out the door you go. Well, for some reason, throughout the day, Rosie decides, you know what? I'm not sure about these instructions. I mean, yeah, they're, you know, the maker and all that and blah, 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 blah. But maybe I could do something a little better. And so Rosie decides to disregard the instructions and to disconnect herself from the power source and she says, oh, I got this battery, but, you know, it's really holding me back. It's on my back. It's kind of heavy. Got to charge every night. So whatever. I'm just going to get rid of this and do my own thing. Well, what happens? Inevitably, she disconnects from the source of her power or her life and she dies. She's dead and you come home and you're expecting to find the nice, warm, hot pot of spaghetti. But instead, what you find are these like simmering, half-cooked, you know, gross meat, and then some overcooked, burnt-out, hard noodles. And you're looking at this going, oh, man, what happened, Rosie? She totally disconnected. She completely disobeyed. And as a result, the meal was squandered. Well, imagine... At that point, if you were to save the day, what you would do is perhaps you'd say, okay, it's no longer spaghetti, but it's going to be like spaghetti pizza or something. So you're going to brown the meat, you're going to go with the crispy noodles, and you're going to have some sort of casserole at night. Yeah, that's not so bad. You know, it tastes good. We can do something with this. But how much better would it be if one of those surprise chefs all of a sudden showed up at your door and said, No worries, I've got all new ingredients, everything is fresh, I bought it at the farmer's market this morning, it just got caught, I'm going to cut, slice, chop, you know, marinade, season, everything, and you're going to have an incredible meal this evening. Now that would be interesting to me. Now here's where the imagination comes in. (laughs) 
where is this going, Pastor Jeremy? Imagine the entire cosmos in those terms, if you will. We being the robots, I know we're not robots, we don't want to be called robots, but just imagine that we are the created creature, we are given a certain set of instructions, we're told to plug into the life source, never disconnect, and all of a sudden we shun all of that, and what happens? The whole thing gets burnt. Then midway through, the Lord Jesus comes back and he says, hey, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to take your mess and I'm going to clean it up a little bit, make it livable for a while. And you're like, yeah, this is pretty good. We like the fellowship we have now with God, but there's still something more. Well, then the future promise is not just that we will live with casserole, spiritual casserole for the rest of our life, but instead we will be completely restored to a state that was way better than anything that was ever in the beginning. Today we're going to begin a new sermon series uh, for the Advent, and it's going to be a little bit different in the sense it won't be Mary, Joseph, baby, snow, how nice and cute, ah, feel good, go home, blah, blah. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to step back from the Luke 2 story and look at the Genesis to Revelation story. We're going to look at the big picture, the higher level, if you will, and we're going to follow the macro theme of Scripture as it moves us along and how it plays in to the single event we call Christmas. In other words, what we have in Genesis is the story of Paradise Lost, and in Revelation, what we have is the story of Paradise Regained. And what we see throughout then is the movement from creation to redemption, to, or creation to fall, redemption to restoration. And that is what we're looking forward to. So in other words, what we're doing is we're moving from the past glory to the future glory. And thus this sermon series is going to be entitled, From Glory to Glory. From Eternity Past to Eternity Future. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So this morning, we're going to start with the first one, which is creation. And I'm going to try to move it in this way. Um, Originally, I had three points. But as I was praying this morning, um, the Lord reminded me of one other. And so what I'd like to do is make, if you're taking notes, a point zero. And then I will still have three points. And it'll be perfect. But I'll start with zero through three and call that three. And the first point is this, which is not on the slide, is uh, where did we come from? Where did we come from? Point zero. Then point one, where where were we? Point two, where are we now? And then point three, how do we get back? So originally, where did we come from? Where were we? Where are we now? And then how do we get back? I wanted to start with where do we come from? Because I think that is absolutely essential to the equation. It's like if you were to get to know me, um, it is one thing to say I live in Michigan now, but it's a whole other thing or a deeper way of getting to know me by saying, well, where were you born? Well, I was born in South Carolina. Oh, South Carolina. Why there? Well, obviously I didn't choose it, but my parents 
who God led through this series of events to meet there, to get married there, and to begin their lives there, this is how they began, and thus I began, in South Carolina. And that instance, that forming in that area, influenced the rest of my life deeply. So in a similar way, let us not look at just where we were in Eden, but let's start just a little bit before that, in other words, in eternity past, and say, where did we come from? Now, I want to be clear about this because I had two missionaries show up at my door yesterday, and throughout the course of our conversation, you know, it's interesting to hear the same terms twisted and used differently, but one of the things was one of the guys said, we want to return to Father God. And what he means by that is they believe in the pre-existence of their spirits before they were born. We don't. We believe that we came into being at one point in time and only Jesus is eternal. Now, here is where we see then that truth playing out. For example, where did we come from? Well, we came from God in the sense that God created us. Not that we are his physical offspring, but that he made us. So from whence comes God? Well, that is the question that we as Christians, um, in a sense, can't answer. Because we can't say from whence he came when we say that he always was. God simply is. And so our beginnings, in a sense, begin in the one who had no beginnings. In God. The eternal, pre-existent, forever and ever, I am. The one who was and is and is to come. He is eternal in the sense that he existed before space, time, or matter. Now, I know for us who are finite and temporal, that is nearly impossible to wrap our minds around. How can someone exist inside or outside of or completely <laughs> in, in no relationship to space, time, or matter. That is beyond us. And yet that is God. And what is so interesting about that is that, I mean, not only is it beyond us, but it's also from whence we come. And so you see this eternal, pre-existent one existing independently and yet completely satisfied. There is relationship even before there is humanity. This is how it plays into us. So, for example... Um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit always exist. Consequently, God exists in perfect relational harmony before there ever were any creatures. He is never lonely. He is completely satisfied. He enjoyed himself and never needed us. He had fellowship with the, the Father, had fellowship with the Son, and the Son, the Spirit, and the Spirit, the Father, and it worked. There was complete harmony, unity, and love. So what that means is that God is a relational God. Okay, so that's point number one on our origins. What is God like? He is a relational God. This will play into who you are. So he is a relational God. Point two is that he is glorious. He is glorious. Now, we think of glory and we think of some, you know, fuzzy, warm glow, this ethereal substance that nobody can touch. And what is glory? But when you look at the Bible, 
Instead, the way it defines glory is not in this warm, fuzzy halo, but instead, in, in a sense, in a, in a not tangible, but a very real way, and it is this. Exodus 33. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. Okay? Moses wants to see God's glory, whatever that is. What is glory? Moses wants to see it. And God says to Moses, okay, I'm going to do it. I will show you my glory. And this is what it is. Verse 19, he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. So what then is God's glory? God's glory is his character. He himself is his own glory, his essence, who he is, his abilities, his attributes, his morality, his nature. Those things which make God, God, are his glory. And in a sense, the way he defines it to us is he says, my goodness or my name, my name is is a, a substitute way of saying my character. His character stands for his name. So God is saying to Moses then that my glory is my character. So then God is two things. He is relational and he is glorious. He is relational and he is glorious. He is Trinitarian and he is holy. Relational and glorious. So then if that is our beginning, we say then, who are we? Well, we are made in his image, which means in a very similar way to or as a representative of him. Genesis 1, and 27. Listen carefully to how this reads. You'll see some underlining and other things up there. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, again, as you listen to all of the plurals in that passage... Make in our image. What are we talking about? Multiple gods? No, one God, three persons. Trinity. That is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at work in creation. Them. Us. are. Now, them is us. Male and female. So, like God, we are also relational. We are relational beings. God is two things. He is relational and he is holy or he is glorious. We, created in his image, are then also in the same way relational. And you could say we are glorious. Now, of course, not sharing the same pre-existent, eternal, supreme glory that God is. But there are some parts of God's character or essence that he shares with us. He shares with us certain moral attributes. We can be holy as he is holy. We can grow. 
We can be, not that he grows, but we can become more like him. And the more we do, the more glorious we become. We are being conformed to the image of his son, the perfect representative of his glory. We can become glorious. So, our origins, where we came from, is a perfect God, which makes us in his image. And to represent him, we are made in a relational and glorious way. Okay, so that is deep, but that is important for what happens to us when things go awry and what we have to look forward to in the future. So then, let's go to the first official point, which is, where are we? Where, are, or where were we? Where were we? When God created humanity, Genesis tells us in Genesis chapter 2, it goes like this. This is where they were. This is where God placed Adam and Eve. See the slide on your screen here in a moment. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it, it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that followed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth is Euphrates. So you have a slide up there, and basically in the green, it shows you two different potential locations for the Garden of Eden. We say potential because we know two of the four rivers, but we don't know all four. So it's somewhere around the Tigris and the Euphrates, uh, perhaps near the Persian Gulf, perhaps not. But this is as close as we can get. So here it was that Genesis 2.15 tells us that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Now, let me ask uh, a bit of a rhetorical question. You know the answer to this. Did you choose your parents? Did I choose my parents? Did we choose where we were born? No more so than Adam and Eve. So is it then possible, do you think, for God to choose your location? Well, look at the biblical narrative. God put Noah in the ark. God put Jacob in the service of Laban. God put Joseph in jail. God put Moses in the river. God put David in the service of Saul. God put Daniel in Babylon. God put Esther in a harem. And God put Nehemiah in the position of of cupbearer. Well, isn't that cute? You know, an ark on a flannel graph floating through the waters safely to shore in a dove and a rainbow and cute little, you know, Fisher-Price figures to accompany the story. Daniel and the nice furry little kitties. Here, lions, come on over. Are you serious? 
Did you read these stories? God put Noah in the path of the largest natural disaster known to mankind. God put Jacob in slavery to his father-in-law. God put Joseph in prison. God had Moses' parents abandon him and put him in the foster care system. God put Davis, David in the service of a madman. You think your boss was bad. God put Daniel in Babylon as an exile and perhaps he was even castrated. God put Esther in a harem to basically live out the sexual slave trade. And God put Nehemiah in a position to be poisoned. Sign me up for that. No, thank you. Why in the world would God do something like that? That's crazy. Have you ever felt that way? What am I doing here? Why am I here? Why did you put me here, God? I hate where I'm at. I'm not sure I like it. I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. I want to be somewhere else. God, why did you put me here? Well, perhaps the answer to you is the same as that it was to all of these, including Esther. For such a time as this. Do you think it's possible for God to choose locations? Absolutely. Rosaria Butterfield, who writes a book about her conversion from the most extreme form of homosexuality to a very conservative brand of Christianity. uh, One of the things she talks about is when her husband's a church planter. And she says this, she said, God never gets an address wrong. And I really appreciate that because I worked at UPS going through seminary and I understood (laughs) what's going on there. (laughs) Because one of my my jobs was to figure out why certain packages weren't delivered. And a lot of times it's very easy. If it's going to 3909, all of a sudden it goes 3990 or something like that. And the driver's like, I have no idea, you know, and you go through the database and you try to match names and it should have been Smith John, it should have John Smith or whatever. And sure enough, as human beings, we make a lot of mistakes and it's easy for us to impose our ideas of this sort of errant journey on God. But is there anywhere in scripture where you see that? Where God goes, oh man, shoot, I got the wrong address. My bad. <laughs> It wasn't Nineveh. You were supposed to go the other way. (laughs) My mistake. No. Never. God never gets the address wrong. Be encouraged, believer. You are where you are at for a reason. God put you here. He put them in the garden. He put them in the ark. He put them in the lion's den. And that may not seem so glorious. I mean, the garden's pretty good, but the rest of the stuff after that, whoo, what happened? This isn't the way we wanted things to go. And yet, here's God at work, choosing where we end up. Be encouraged. God put 
you here. Now look at Adam and Eve. Their situation is quite a bit different than ours, obviously. They're enjoying the garden of God, a lush and beautiful place. And they get the benefit and privilege of walking regularly with God. Now, remember that we are human beings and therefore we are relational. And you see this in particular in a very unhindered way in this section because they are naked and unashamed. They walk with nothing between them, one another, and nothing between God. And they do it regularly. As you look at the verses of this chapter, what you see in verse 8 of chapter 3 of Genesis is that Right before the fall, or after the fall, in the process of the discovery, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. The idea there is basically that this is a regular process. This is an ongoing thing. They walk with God. This is a privilege that they enjoy in a completely uninhibited way. Every day they get the opportunity just to walk with one another, And with God. Now, I asked this question on Facebook earlier this week. I said, well, what do you think makes a good relationship? A lot of the words came through were like trust, transparency, honesty, respect, love, all of these things. And I thought to myself, well, why do you even have to say that? Shouldn't that be an automatic I mean, that's what it is, isn't it? Marriage. And yet, at some point, all of that was lost. In Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 results in this. When you had trust, when you had respect, when you had openness, when you had complete transparency, when you had perfect, harmonious, daily love, all of a sudden, there's a fall. And now there's isolation. Verse 24 says, this is what they lost. Here we go. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They're kicked out. They're isolated. Everything good they had is now gone. They had perfect origins. They had a perfect location and they had the perfect activity. But now they are isolated from their relational God. They are removed from their original location. And they no longer have the opportunity to walk with Him. Man, as I think about that, I say, wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. We lost. And even though I've never, ever, ever actually even been to Eden... I miss it. I miss it. I wish I was there. And when I realize that and I think about it, what I realize is that Eden is in fact in my blood. That I myself come from a long line of Edenites. And so just like Buck in Jack London's book White Fang... There is a call inside of me to return to that thing which I know. 
Even though I have never been there, I feel it. And I miss it. Because it is in my blood. The author of Ecclesiastes says it like this. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning. The author of Hebrews says they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, says we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. Where are we now? Well, we're all born outside of the original Eden. And our nature and our inclinations and our thoughts and our actions all confirm our outsider and exiled status. And our expulsion remains. So where is our encouragement? Well, it comes in the red letters in the New Testament. By one who said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And that I, am I not going to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. So in other words, even though we are now born outside of Eden, exiled from God, he is intentionally making a way for us to get back. That way is an interesting way because in the Old Testament it shows up like this. Originally in Leviticus chapter 26 verse 12, God says to his people, I will walk among you. What an interesting statement that must have been for those who have been living outside the garden. Who no longer have that fellowship. And all of a sudden he's assuring them, hey, I will walk among you. And they're like, okay, come. But he can't. Why? Because they are sinful. And if he were to be among them, being the just and righteous God that he was, he would have to obliterate them. So for their good and for their protection and for their benefit, he creates a barrier to separate his holiness from their sin. And thus you have the Old Testament sacrificial system in which sinners before the time of Christ could approach God via the tabernacle and temple. I think we have a slide of that tabernacle up here. There are barriers and veils and walls, all the stuff necessary to separate sinful humanity from a holy God. And the way this thing works is basically God is hinting at what will come. He provides sacrificial lambs and he shows them how the blood of the lamb can cover or atone for their sin. So what happens then in the Old Testament as this system develops, even from the time of Abraham and Isaac before the giving of the law, the question that is asked is this. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? When Isaac spoke up to his father Abraham, he said, Father, yes, my son Abraham replied, the fire and wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. Then in the New Testament, 
John the Baptist sees Jesus coming towards him and says, Behold, look, there's the Lamb. What the Old Testament hints and foreshadows, the New Testament fulfills. God provides the Lamb and therefore Jesus enters by means not of blood and goats and calves, but instead he entered the holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained an eternal redemption. Then Romans chapter 3 verses 22 through 26 say it like this. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So as to be both the one who is just and the one who justifies. So here's where we are now. We are outside of Eden. We are isolated from God. We no longer have a sacrificial system. Instead, we have a lamb and his name is Jesus. And so I want to challenge you today. I don't know how long you've been sitting in those seats, whether it's one day or all your life. But you need to know for certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that your sacrificial lamb, your atoning sacrifice is Jesus Christ. Where are you? You have to find yourself in him. In Christ. If you've never done that this morning, I want to challenge you to do so. Just look to Jesus and place your faith in Him. To know for certain that Jesus is the one who's paid for your sins. That we Christians call atonement. Now that sounds like a big word, but let me give you a simpler way to think of that. We were separated from God. So if you take one piece and you separate it, you make it two pieces. Then, if you put it back together again, you say that it is now one. Atonement, if you look at that word, you could call it in another way, at one meant. We were sinners who were separated for God from God. Then the blood covered our sins and atoned for or made us one again. Atonement can be thought of as at-one-ment. We were divorced or legally separated from God, and He made an intentional way for us to come back together again. That is atonement. So then, what do we do now? Well, if you have placed your faith in Christ, then what you do now is the same thing that you did way back when, or that we as humanity did way back then. You walk. You walk with God. Now that looks a little bit different for us because obviously we're not, you know, arm in arm, shoulder in shoulder, physically present. But Christ in a very real way is present with us now through the power of his spirit. So how do we walk with him? Well, just like we walk with anyone else. First of all, it means you have to make time for them. I can't go on a walk with somebody if I don't say no to something else and say, okay, what time do you want to walk together? Okay, let's meet at this place and then we will go for a walk. You have to be purposeful. You have to be intentional. If you want to walk with Christ, you have to be purposeful and intentional. You have to stop and say, hey, look, what time am I going to do this? When? How? Where? And then when you go, don't bring your kazoo. You know, 
You're going on a walk with somebody, you put your kazoo in, you're like, how is that helpful? Put it down, get rid of all the distractions, and be quiet. And get ready to listen. Because it's pretty hard to have a relationship if you never listen to the other side. You've got to be ready to listen. Just be quiet. How do you do that? Well, you listen particularly in our setting through the work of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You listen through the Word, so you read and you wait for the Spirit to convict you and instruct you. You listen. Psalm 1 gives a good picture of that. You share your heart. You share your thoughts. You spend time. You even laugh together. Can you laugh with God? Can you enjoy Him? Can you enjoy His presence? Or do you just envision Him as this big, mean guy waiting to stomp on you? If He's really your friend and someone you walk with, you need to enjoy Him. Make Him your greatest joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. You can even laugh with Him. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's fun to be with God. Now, it's pretty hard to enjoy Him if you're walking away from Him. In other words, to take a walk with somebody, you have to be walking in the same direction. And you probably suppose that preachers and other people are up here just hammering on this one point the whole time. That's why I want to hit the others. But you know what? If you want to walk with someone, you do need to be in alignment with them. That means your values, your life, your priority, everything has to be going in the same direction. Otherwise, you're not walking together. You're going different directions. And there's no fellowship there. You've got to line it up. Make sure everything agrees. And if there's something in your life that doesn't line up with God, guess what you get to do? Get rid of it. Now, I know that's nearly heresy for the hoarders out there, but let me assure you there is value to getting rid of stuff. We have a garage sale here. Donate it to that. Come on, get rid of something. I have a uh, very close uh, relationship with someone I know who uh, her, her motto is concentrate and eliminate. And let me tell you, her house is spotless. And her children make fun of her a lot because they can hardly ever find their toys because more than likely mom has thrown them away. <laughs> If it's on the floor, it's, it's, it's garbage. It's gone. And she has a perfect house. Why? Because she concentrates and eliminates. Now, look, if you want to walk with God, sometime you need to clean out your house. And that means concentrate and eliminate. Get rid of stuff. If it is not helping or advancing your walk with God, throw it away. But it's not bad. So what? Too many times we are sacrificing the best on the altar of too many good things. Because it's good doesn't mean it's right. Get rid of it. It's cramming stuff up. Your cars, which are thousands of dollars, are parked outside because your trikes are in the garage, which are only a few dollars. No offense. That doesn't make sense. Get rid of the trike. Park the car. Keep the thing of the most value. Concentrate and eliminate. 
Enjoy God. Walk with Him. Make sure you're aligned. Enjoy your fellowship. Regularly and uninhibited. When Robin and I were first dating, one of the things that uh, made it clear to me that I could marry her is that she didn't talk at me all the time. (laughs) You know? If you go out on a date with one girl and there's quiet time in the car, all of a sudden what happens? (laughs) Where's our next stop? (laughs) Right there, (laughs) you know? Robin and I can ride in a car and be happy even when it's quiet. And we're comfortable together. We enjoy that. And if we want to talk, we certainly can, and there's nothing to it, but you don't have to make conversation because there's going to be an awkward silence if you don't. We can just enjoy being together. That's fun. Why don't you enjoy God? Get rid of some stuff. Walk with Him. Be quiet. Be still. And know that He is God. Look, it's not that complicated. <laughs> Micah 6.8 says it like this. It says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. You don't have to be perfect. I don't read that in here anywhere. It says, Just do justice Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. We're not robots, are we? Of course not. But God is sovereign to be sure. And He put you here for a reason. Whether we like it or not, here's the circumstance we're in. But who knows? Maybe He put us here for such a time as this. What's happening then? Well, He's moving us from glory to glory. He's moving us towards an unhindered relationship with Him. Where we will be what we once were. Perfect relationships and perfect glory. So, what we have to look forward to then is this. No more questions. Where am I going? What am I doing? Is this really worth it? None of that stuff will ever have to be asked again when we have found our eternal home. Instead, what will happen is this. You will see a new heaven and a new earth. And look, God is dwelling with humanity. And He will live with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, pain will no longer exist because the previous things have all passed away. Then the One, the Lamb, who is seated on the throne, will say, look, I am making everything new. And then he said, it is done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. From glory to glory. This is what you were created for. Perfect, unhindered, eternal fellowship 
with God. In Him we live and move and have our being. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.